Relationship Rewire is made possible by support from its listeners. So please hit pause and go to growinglovenetwork.org and click on the donate button. Go ahead. We'll be glad to wait. Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewired, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. This episode is titled, An Intersection of Same-Sex Attraction and Marriage. From about age eight until three years into my bachelor's degree, I lived in the town of Abilene, Texas. In what is known as downtown Abilene, Texas, was a place called Walnut Street Pub. Now, other than the Walnut Street Pub sign out front, there was nothing else that would indicate what type of establishment it was. But everybody in town knew Walnut Street Pub to be a gay bar. One night, my freshman year in college, probably 1982 or 1983, I did something that still haunts me, something I regret, but is also a marker of how God has been bringing me to a closer and closer understanding of his grace, his love for me, his endless pursuit for me. That night, myself and several other guys from my dorm room, or my dorm building, we loaded up in a truck, pickup truck, and we drove over to the Walnut Street pub drove in front of it where there was a line of young men waiting to get in and we slowed to a crawl and then with the several dozen eggs that we had just purchased we began hurling those eggs at the young man standing in line I'm holding on to hope that one day this could be made right Cause I've been shipwrecked and left for dead And I've seen the darkest signs Most likely one of the young men that was in that line or maybe inside that night was a person that I'll call Mark, that I grew up with. Grew up with since second grade. His parents were friends with my parents. We went to church together, Bible school classes together. I had remember spending the night at his house a couple, two or three times, and he at my house. In fact, I have one vivid memory of uh, my mom had gotten hold of several refrigerator boxes, 
and thought they might be fun for me to play with. And so one night, Mark came over and spent the night, and we built a big, what we called a spaceship, out of those boxes out in the backyard. Well, I moved away. Joanne and I got married at the end of my junior year of college, and we moved away to Colorado, and I continued my education there. And eventually, about 10 years later, we came back to Abilene for me to work on my graduate degree in, in marriage and family therapy. And I got back to Abilene to find out that Mark was now dying of AIDS. And when he did actually die of AIDS, his parents asked me to be a pallbearer in his funeral. I was somewhat uncomfortable with the idea, but I thought there's no way I could say no to them. And that experience was an experience that started uh, kind of a domino effect of experiences that I would not have counted on or definitely not have invited into my life. But I believe that, that God has put those experiences in my life. One of the next ones was that while I was there for graduate school, uh, another young man who had come to out of, from another city to go to college there and was in our class at church. He, uh, we got to know him, and uh, he seemed like a kind of guy I could hang out with. Seemed like a similar interest to mine. And um, he asked if I would be his accountability partner, if we could be people that sharpened each other and and helped strengthen each other and encourage each other in our walks with God. So we would meet together faithfully for two years while I was there at graduate school. And we would pray and encourage each other and talk about what we struggled with. And we would uh, follow through the Bible, our Bible reading together. Uh, we were both reading at the same time, at the same pace. And we would uh, every day we would write down an index card uh, what we had gotten from that day's reading and when we met together each week, we would exchange those cards, learn from each other, and grow. And my kids even uh, got to know him as uncle, and Joanna was fond of him. And we had a, a, a good relationship that helped us both and strengthened us both. Well, about a year into that relationship, during one of our weekly meetings, Roger said, I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anybody before, and I ask that you keep it extremely confidential. And that thing is that I struggle with same-sex attraction. Everyone I've loved seems like a stranger in the night But oh, my heart still burns Tells me to return and search the fading 
Well, after some prayer and thinking and, and God working on my heart, there was no way I could abandon Roger. And so for another year, uh, not only did I change my thinking some, but because of his candidness and openness and transparency with me, I was able to be more transparent and open with things that I was tempted by and struggled with. And so I saw God use Roger as someone in my life that that he was using to bring me closer to him. Well, then Joanne and I, um, after finishing graduate school, she and I and the, our three children moved to San Antonio, and I started private practice. And Roger would come and visit occasionally. He had moved to Austin where he thought he might uh, feel less alone. And uh, he would continue to tell me uh, that he was struggling further and further and sometimes um, getting involved in same-sex relationships. Eventually, he moved off to San Francisco where we drifted further apart uh, because of geography and just different places in our lives and different interests. And His faith was shaking and I did what I could, but I probably didn't near didn't nearly do what I could have if my heart would have been more like I think Jesus' heart would have been for him. So I was in private practice, and my partner and supervisor, who had had been uh, in practice longer than I have, and uh, he's a fellow elder at our church in San Antonio. He told me, you know, John, you probably need to have a specialty because just kind of being a general therapist, it's going to be harder for you to build a practice. Well, I didn't know exactly what that might be, so I started to pray about it. And as I got my first several clients, I noticed that three of my first eight clients had come to me primarily because they secretly struggle with same-sex attraction. Two of them were leaders in their church. One married with children. The other one fairly newly married. And I was wondering, uh, well, God, what are you doing? Why are you sending me these people? I don't know what to do. I don't feel equipped to help them. And so Joanne and I, one night, we were on our way. It was about an hour's drive to a seminar we were going to. And I was telling her, I'm wondering if God is telling me that this might be one of the things I need to specialize in. And she had some concerns and she said, well, let's just pray about it. So for probably the last 30 minutes of that car ride, Joanne and I prayed that God would open doors, that if this is what he wants us doing, that that uh, he would make it clear, and if not, that he would make that clear as well. And so after 30 minutes of fairly fervent prayer together, we arrived at the seminar, and we walked in, and I caught the eye of a person who had come about two years to, uh, to our graduate program, 
and to give a presentation on some groundbreaking work that he'd been doing with same-sex attraction. And so I, I knew his name. I, I don't know if I even met him while he came to present at that, but uh, for some reason he uh, recognized me probably because uh, we were there for a seminar that uh, my dad was putting on, and he knew my dad. But he came uh, straight up to me, and he said, as soon as you walked in, I heard the Spirit strongly telling me that I'm supposed to tell you that you're supposed to be doing what I'm doing. So, long story, I'll try to make this long story shorter, but, uh, so I began a, a group for men. We met every Tuesday night for two years, seven o'clock, and uh, we put an ad in the paper every week. It was in the seedy section of the paper where you would find uh, ads one ads for escort services and massage parlors. And the ad simply said something like, if you struggle with same-sex attraction and it's not congruent with your values, we have a group for you. So for two years I met with uh, the core of the group was four or five guys. There was others that came and went and some stayed for weeks or months and some stayed once or twice, but uh, there were uh, four of those men that came faithfully for two years. Again, uh, three of those people were married. Two of them married with children. Three of them were leaders in their church, a worship minister, one that led a Bible class, one who was a deacon. And they were all leading uh, a life that they were holding this deep secret that nobody else knew about. Well, we tried several things over the first year. We tried a lot of things to deal with neuroplasticity, to try to change the brain, to try to make them ungay, as people would say. Nothing seemed to really be working. One of the men in the group, I'll call him Henry, uh, married with three children, and he was uh, acting out his struggle by having anonymous sex. He would go to a what we would call a bathhouse at least once a week, usually once a week or so, and. It's a place where you would uh, pay a fee at the door. You'd walk into a dark, dimly lit, steamy building with a hot tub and a sauna and a lounging area. And you would go and try to make eye contact and give some kind of signal that you wanted to hook up for uh, consensual, anonymous sex, which would happen right there on the spot probably with other people doing the same in the same room. And then you'd leave. So Henry would go to this bathhouse once a week, and, and through the first year, when we'd come and report how, how the previous week had, had 
gone for each person. Uh, Henry would hang his head because every single week he had still gone back to that that bathhouse that he didn't like that he went there and, and that was eating him up inside, that he was leading this double life. But he said, I just don't know how to keep myself from going. So one of the other young men in the group, uh, he said, so where is Jesus in all this? And Henry said, well, you know, funny you say that because I will often park out. I don't park in, in front. I park at this parking lot across the street. So hopefully my car won't be recognized there. But I park in this parking lot across the street and I often spend, uh, sit there in the car for two, maybe three hours sometimes having this debate in my head about whether or not to go in. And it's like that classic scene of an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other having this tug-of-war on each of your ears. And he said it was like I would actually sense Jesus sitting there in the passenger seat with me. And the guy said, so so what would happen if, if Jesus is there? And he said, well, he was always there. I always pictured him there in the passenger seat. And that's what sometimes I would sit and and be hearing him saying, please don't go in, please don't go in. But eventually the, the little demon on my shoulder would win out and I'd always eventually end up going in. So the guy said, so uh, so what does Jesus do when you go in? And he said, well, usually he sits there in in the car and waits for me. Sometimes he'll get out and walk with me up until we get to the door, but he doesn't go inside. Jesus wouldn't wouldn't be caught in a place like that. To which the other young man replied, that's where you're wrong. Jesus goes in with you every single time, and he's right there with you every single time. And, and when you're having your consensual sex, that person is on one side of you, and Jesus is on the other with his arm around you, weeping over you. Come on moment everyone just stood sat still for what seemed like a long time not knowing what to say everyone's eyes were welling up with tears and tears were dripping on the floor mine as well that really changed a lot about how i see the pits in my life the filthy pits that many of them I return to over and over again, although 
such a big piece of me says, I don't want that for myself. Helps me to see better, clearer how God sees me, how he pursues me, how he's passionate in his relationship with me, that he loves me so much that he goes wherever I go. And it really teaches me a lot about grace and love and helps me to understand that I have, and I believe all of us have our struggles. We all have our filthy pits that we go back to. We have our version of bathhouse. And God's love for us does not depend on us never returning to our bathhouse again. I had uh, just enough sex education prior to going to graduate school to believe that it was pretty cut and dry, pretty black and white. You're either born male or female, one or the other. I had heard about the what the condition that we used to call hermaphrodite, which is not a good term to use, but uh, I, I always thought that that was some something that was extremely rare. That there may be a handful of people walking around on the earth that were born with um, genitalia of both male and female, or having uh, male chromosomes and female genitalia and female chromosomes and male genitalia. But the the fact of the matter is that about one in four hundred pregnancies have. Um, an odd count of sex chromosomes. So we know that it takes two X chromosomes to have a female. It takes an X and a Y chromosome, and then you have a male. But some people are born with only one chromosome, or some people are born with three or more sex chromosomes. So if you do the math, that's over 800,000 people in the U.S. alone that do not have chromosomes that definitely indicate whether they're male or female. And that's just one piece of the complex puzzle. So it's not at all cut and dry. There's just no way to uh, easily put people into boxes. We had a couple uh, some years back in our young marriage class, back when we were young marrieds, and this couple had a child that was born sexually ambiguous, gender ambiguous. It was uh, not, uh, there was no way to tell definitely whether it was a male or female. And that was a huge struggle for that couple, I'm sure. To some extent, it's an ongoing struggle for them and, and for the child. And, but it really opened my eyes to uh, the sensitivity that we need to have that we often don't have unless we are presented with a situation in our life where we can't just think of, of these kind of things as somebody else that, we've, that we're really not involved with. In fact, I think that's uh, one of the biggest ways God 
creates more compassion in us is to present us with situations that we wouldn't have chosen so that uh, we have to move our hearts and minds in a direction that is more compassionate. Further along, I know all about it. Farther along, I understand why. So cheer up, my brothers. I've had other people come in and out of my life and some still in my life some professionally some just on a friendship basis that struggle with same-sex attraction in different ways and different levels one of those friends I was just talking to recently and he was talking about how it's getting harder and harder for him to attend church because see nobody at his church knows that he struggles with same-sex attraction but things are said very often not boldly he says I, I haven't heard a sermon that tells me I'm not welcome there but I, I understood I think what he was getting at you know I'm not interested in going and sitting and hearing a sermon. And it may even be a sermon that says, uh, we welcome you if you struggle with same-sex attraction. We, we, uh, you're welcome to attend our services. But at the same time, you're living in sin and you're not acceptable if that doesn't change. I think there is a lot of hypocrisy in just the desire for those types of sermons to be preached. We see in Scripture that for many of us it seems to be very clear, for some of us it's not as clear, that it seems that uh, homosexuality does not fit with God's plan. But I don't really uh, want to dive into those scriptures and try to define, have some kind of discussion at this point about how to interpret those scriptures and what does that mean and how bad is it and if is it a certain worse sin than others. I do know, though, that there are pretty clear statements about divorce I know that uh, Scripture says God hates divorce. Now, I don't want in any way for anybody to get the idea that I'm going to rail against divorcees here. But there's a, a, a good deal of hypocrisy in how we deal, as an example, with so differently with these two topics. I don't know if I've heard a sermon, at least not in recent memory. I'm sure it happens at some churches, but I haven't heard a sermon that tells people that if you've uh, been divorced and you remarried, that you are living in sin. 
but there's a pretty strong scripture reference to say that you are. Now, I'm, but I'm not interested in hearing a sermon that makes people feel that if they have divorced and remarried, that they are living in sin. In fact, I'm glad that we have divorce recovery groups at churches and that we embrace the person who has done that. We have them over to our homes. We become their friends and their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's what we should do. I don't think that we should be preaching sermons that say, hey, you know, if the heart pulls you to somebody else, then go divorce somebody. But um, I don't think that we should be alienating those people and making them feel that they're not welcome unless they go back to their original spouse. But to preach a sermon that says, if you are same-sex attracted and you're not willing to have a monogamous heterosexual marriage or totally abstain from any sexual contact with somebody of the same sex and you're not welcome here if you continue to do so or you're living in sin, the hypocrisy of having a sermon like that but not having a sermon like that that applies to divorce is uh, something that's rampant in Christianity in our culture today. And it's, in my strong opinion, not what Jesus would do. Now, one of the reasons I'm, I'm passionate about marriage is, you know, the effects of divorce on children is pretty obvious. We've known for decades, just based on census numbers, that children of divorce are uh, roughly twice as handicapped as the average child in almost every category of life. They're much more likely to be involved in crime. They're much more likely to uh, live in poverty, more likely to become addicted to substance, more likely to have mental or emotional disorders, more likely to be in failed relationships themselves, and the list goes on and on. And uh, ending a marriage is breaking of a covenant, and your vows, and a commitment. So those are pieces, but that's not the real reason I'm passionate about marriage. The real reason I'm passionate about marriage is because it is the original design of how we learn to love each other and God the way He loves us. It's the training ground to learn to love. It's the testing ground. If you are looking at the great commandment as Jesus talks about in Luke, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, and, and those two commandments, not only are they the greatest, it's not like a hierarchy. He says all other scripture hangs on those two commandments. In other words, those commandments are the real, the only commandments. All the other commandments are just about those two commandments. They're there to prop that up. So loving people is, is our main goal. And that's how we love God. And loving God is how we love people. And we are not born to love. Maybe originally we were, but we don't come out of the womb saying, how can I show somebody else love at my own expense today? How can I set aside my desires for the moment for the good of others? We come out pretty much the opposite. Give me, take care of me. We don't even notice the plights and struggles and issues that other people are dealing with around us. We learn to love. It's not a thing that comes naturally. In fact, love is a supernatural thing. And that supernatural love that God gives us does not depend on our actions. It does not depend on our living a right life. Those are things that we should be striving to be do better and better. But His love for us is constant and that's the kind of love he expects us to have for each other. That that love that we have for each other does not depend on that other person's behavior or actions. So if I am not loving my spouse, then I'm truly not going to be able to love anybody because that definition of love says that the other person's behavior, the other person's actions, the way they, uh, my perception of them makes me feel is the condition of my love. And so when we learn to love our spouse better, then we're learning to love God better. And then we're actually able to love others better because if our love for our spouse depends on their behavior, then that's the same kind of love we are going to, the same standard we're going to have for our relationships with others, which is eventually going to go away if we spend a lot of time with them because they are going to let us down too, and their actions are going to bother us and change the way we feel about them. But the love that Christ has for us does not depend on our behavior. We are one, every thought and sign, with our forgotten names. We left home on the open road to find the holy flames. We but if we are going to choose to stand on pedestals and rail against certain things at the expense of our relationships with the people that are engaged in those things, then we are turning the gospel of Jesus Christ upside down. And we become like the Pharisees who, in that case in Luke, 
were trying to trip Jesus up. And they were spending their time worshiping and focusing on the lower commandments and making those more important than the highest commandment, which is to love God with all you got and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the neighbor is not the person who thinks like you and acts like you and believes like you. In fact, when that instance in Luke, when Jesus says, this is what you do, this is the great commandment, and the guy asking him realizes, well, I didn't trip him up on that. So he thinks, well, maybe I can trip him up with this next question where he says, so who is my neighbor? Likely believing him being a Pharisee himself, that his neighbor is the person who lives next door or across the street, the same neighborhood in Jerusalem, who worships at the same synagogue, who is of the same persuasion in most ways is him. But Jesus tells a story to explain who a good neighbor is. And he uses a Samaritan. And in the telling of that story, just the mere fact that he said Samaritan would have made the hairs on that guy's neck stand up on end because the Samaritan was not at all what he was thinking of as what a neighbor is. The Samaritan actually to him was the lowest form of human being on the earth. In fact, maybe subhuman in his mind. History tells us that at that time, if a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Jew was walking down the street and a Samaritan was walking toward him, he would cross the street so as not to be on the same side of the street as that person. So this is who Jesus used to describe a good neighbor. In other words, he was telling this guy, your neighbor that you're supposed to love is not the person necessarily who you choose to live by because he thinks and acts like you, but it's the person that I put in your path, whoever that may be. And our path in our culture right now is filled with thousands and thousands of people who by and large do not believe that they can have a seat at the Lord's table with us because we're treating them like a Samaritan. This is the core of why I'm so passionate about marriage. Yes, I love to see marriages being saved. Yes, I love to see relationships healed that were in a rough spot. Yes, I love to see couples who have spent years in turmoil with each other forgive, truly forgive, and start building a wonderful marriage together. But mostly what I love to see is people coming closer into a relationship and an understanding and an appreciation 
of the grace and love that we receive from God through His Son, Jesus. This love endures Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize our culture for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this and any of our podcasts. Send us an email at relationshiprewire at gmail.com. The music featured on this episode is by Josh Garrels. You can find out more about Josh and his music at joshgarrels.com. That's Josh, G-A-R-R-E-L-S dot com. been talk of separation or is either spouse considering divorce? If any of these apply, then Love Reboot is your answer. Come join the hundreds of couples who are once in despair and headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship after attending a Love Reboot weekend. Visit us at growinglovenetwork.org for more information on an upcoming Love Reboot workshop.